Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire at occultofpersonality.net. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky, and this is episode number 197, featuring an interview with Craig Williams discussing his most recent book, Cult of Golgotha. A Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to ChamberOfReflection.com, our membership site. Anathema Publishing Limited. Quality occult books and contemporary esoterica. Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a trinosophic relationship in troth and gabo between publisher, author, and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian theosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com A Cult of Personality podcast is also sponsored by Miskatonic Books, an online store that focuses on the esoteric, occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, witchcraft, the Golden Dawn, as well as dark fantasy, classic horror, and supernatural fiction. They carry books by all your favorite esoteric publishers as well. Just visit MiskatonicBooks.com. Our guest tonight is Craig Williams, returning to the show to discuss his most recent book, Cult of Golgotha, available from Anathema Publishing Limited. Cult of Golgotha presents a mysterious and strange glimpse into a creative occult current of revealed Gnostic expression. The alchemical cross-pollination of tantric physics and esoteric voodoo. Gnostic Bishop Craig Williams reveals a systematic vista of quantum exploration within the womb of the dark goddess and her web-like reach into the elemental world of Gnostic Voodoo. This text reveals the insidious, archonic systems of control, which engenders the psyche and spirit of contemporary consciousness, severing the individual from the chaotic and demonic world of the soul. Cult of Golgotha reveals a Gnostic imaginarium wherein the world of science and the imagination coexist in alchemical symbiosis, stimulating the reawakening of the fire of the soul. Craig Williams has delivered another occult classic. Cult of Golgotha is one of the more unique expressions of high occult strangeness that I've ever read. Harkening back to the works of Michael Berdio 
and Kenneth Grant, Williams takes his readers on a journey into the heart of magical development by demonstrating the creative vision required to journey to the liminal realms and bring forth transformative potential. From Tantra to Voodoo to Western esotericism, Cult of Golgotha stretches both the esoteric landscape and the mind of the reader by introducing systems of occult science designed to awaken and liberate the practitioner using a variety of methods. The text also emphasizes the mental shackles that bind us and prevent our freedom. These systems of control and the methods to escape them deserve much greater study and attention. Be sure to get your copy of this wonderful book from Anathema Publishing Limited before it sells out. Practitioner of Ayurvedic medicine, Vedic sciences, Gnostic spirituality, and martial arts, Craig Williams is also the author of Cave of the Numinous, Tantric Physics Volume 1, and Entering the Desert, Pilgrimage to the Hinterland of the Soul, as well as numerous articles on health, martial arts, and authentic initiation in the Kali Yuga. I'd also like to mention, Craig has been on the show many times in the past. You can find a list of those episodes in the show notes with links. And I consider Craig a good friend, so it's always a pleasure and an honor to speak with him. But more so than that, uh, he's really a wonderful practitioner and an amazing author who continues to deliver just tremendous books. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Dark Secret by Visitors. Craig Williams, thank you so much for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and uh, appreciate your time and uh, attention tonight. Oh, it's an honor to be here, Greg. We always have such interesting discussions and I'm always super excited to talk. Same here. And the occasion for this interview is your recent book, Cult of Golgotha from Anathema Publishing, which, again, I have to say, they consistently produce really tremendous, exquisite books. Uh, And this is no exception. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I was really happy. We planned a lot of interesting artistic ideas with this one to tie in with some of the text. And I, I, I was really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to be. And I think anyone who gets it is going to be happy with it. Yeah, I think so too. I wanted it to be something which kind of stimulated all the senses and had little puzzles inside and that you could almost start at any part of the book and work your way forward or backwards. And, 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 and it, it almost kind of like a, uh, a fun house of, of some ideas. And so I think we managed to do that. Plus it's this beautiful binding and the, uh, everything. So I'm, I'm extremely happy. Yeah, absolutely. It's just 
tremendously beautiful and intriguing, like very mysterious looking book and all the artwork, the fonts, the paper, the way it's put together is just really nice. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, the art was beautiful. I was really happy to work with that artist closely. And it, once again, it just came out better than we could have ever imagined. Yeah. And maybe we could start by talking about what is the cult of Golgotha and what made you decide to write this book? Sure. That it, you know what? That I've always focused a large amount of my writings on vedic teachings or teachings from india um and then as i was writing the previous book entering the desert i started to have some interesting ideas about how in the past 10 or 15 years i had worked closely with michael bertro's system of esoteric budon and that was kind of always in the back of my mind it was something that was always under under kind of an undercurrent of all my other writings and then I started to have a little bit more in-depth conversations privately with Michael Bertrand. And we were talking about the importance of creating your own systems and the importance of occult creativity. And although I was planning to release Tantric Physics 2 next, uh, I started to go back to all my magical journals from youth and, and kind of I kind of did something which I, I have spoken about in other writings, and I called it a, a Gnostic nostalgia. I kind of went back through my magical notebooks and writings and started to see these streams, which were kind of running through everything, which were building up over time. And I wanted, I saw a system there. And, of course, in Michael's system, he always encouraged people to build their own systems. And so at that point, I realized I just had to put something together. Um, and I had to connect all these different threads that were kind of running through. And that's what the Cult of Golgotha is. I wanted it to be um, something which each chapter was like a almost like a peek into another occult laboratory. That someone could just take any chapter from this book and just open just that one chapter and get a certain idea of some things that were happening within this group. And they could close it and open up another chapter, uh, which is much different from Entering the Desert, which had this constant theme and was building up these images. Um, and, but the two books are actually tied together as well. And so many of the ideas that I spoke about in Entering the Desert work those ideas, apply those ideas, then they could create their own systems like the Cult of Gogata, tracing back over their own lives. And so that was kind of my idea. I wanted to do that. And I felt that the there's a lot of um, issues with lack of creativity and occultism now. And so I wanted to produce something which would hopefully be a little strange, a little weird, and to stimulate people to think outside of their boundaries. So hopefully that came through in the writing. Certainly did. Um, yeah, this is an interesting point. And you, you make a, a you emphasize this uh, in particular, this need for the student to reflect, uh, like the student receives the teachings and the blessing from the teacher, but then needs to reflect back the devotion and this creativity and innovation and a, a sort of a vision. Um, and that's uh, often lacking as you, as you just mentioned. I think so. I think that that's, those are very important points. And I think 
we when we work at an esoteric system, um, it, or if we're initiated within an esoteric system or a tradition with a capital T, we have a responsibility with that. To, number one, to maybe honor some of the teachings within that system or those systems, but also to keep it alive and to let it evolve, um, which is a delicate process. It has to evolve without becoming watered down. It has to evolve without becoming homogenized and standardized. And we should have our own unique reflection of that system as well, too. And so that's something that Michael Bertrow asked me that is too. He said, please create something with us. And that was something which I was happy to do. And and also speaking closely with Dr. Reginald Crosley, uh, who you know whose writings were very important to me. He also expressed that same idea. We have to be creative um, because as we receive inspiration, particularly if we're talking about Gnostic inspiration, it should be radically creative. It should be radically wild. And that when these kind of Gnostic infusions come into our lives, um, if that doesn't stimulate creativity, I don't know what else will. And so I think that's a big part of this whole idea of choreograph is just to show that. And also, I think a lot of people may find interesting what my past was and what fed into my magical experiences from my youth up until today, because all those things still exist. You know, we have like a a linear timeline in our lives, but we also have an occult timeline. And those two time frames can be very interesting <laughs> how they go back and forth. To say the least. Exactly. Um, now, uh, you mentioned Michael Berdio and Reginald Crosley, and I'm just wondering, you know, I think you've spoken before about Crosley, but um, it, how did you really connect with these two gentlemen and, yeah. and sort of uh, – establish a relationship with them? That's a good question. Reginald Crosley was someone who I was always interested in. I was initially exposed to him by his writing, The Voodoo Quantum Leap. Mm -hmm. That's an incredibly strange interesting book. Um, so that was very interesting to me, the way he used many complex ideas from quantum physics and tried to show how many of the systems from Haiti were expressing some of these ideas. But uh, in particular, I found his other writings even more interesting. And so I became his friend and spoke to him closely. We, we would have constant conversations about And most people aren't aware of his other writings. And many of his other writings are, I would definitely call radically strange Christianity. And most people aren't aware of that. He tends to be only thought of as this voodoo guy. Um, but he's got some amazing writings on the chapter of Revelation, um, on very mystical writings within Christianity. And as he referred to me himself, he always asked me to tell people, he says, I am not a mystic, I am a theologian. <laughs> That's what he always says. Mm -hmm. And so it, we talked a lot about the creativity and how divine inspiration can come into our lives and how it can be very strange and mysterious and that was something which ancient Christianity always had, and I think that's lost. And so he was really interested in my work and was really interested in my background, both the medical background and then interested in the occult, interested in poetry, and interested in French Haitian spirituality um, and the use of the apostolic succession. So we had interesting ideas, and he kind of gave some teachings to me, which I kind of seeded within 
different chapters of the cult of Golgotha. And so I kind of also wanted to hopefully steer people toward his writings. I wanted cult of Golgotha to be a book which inspired people to look at the sources and kind of trace back to the roots in there. With Michael Bertrow, um, in my late 20s, I became interested in Michael Bertrow's writings and studied his monastery papers. We would write each other. Um, and then over time, I just worked that system consistently. I found it very creative and very interesting and incredibly strange. Um, and those things really excite me. And so although while all while I was working with my Vedic studies, I was always very interested in that as well, too. And so we became very exchanging letters, talking often about how each system must be ex- must be expressed individually. And particularly, Michael's very clear about that in his writings. He, he would, as he would often say, I want people to create their own grimoires. And so that was something which I did with Entry the Desert. And it's kind of, I want to keep it going in another way as well, too. Um, there's a lot of things I have to write. And so I wanted to get all these out. And Cultic Agatha just came as a quick kind of burst of inspiration. And hopefully that kind of radiates through the pages and the writing and the art um, that people can pick up with that. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that it does. I mean, it was immediately apparent that you had this influence of Bertio and I would dare to say Kenneth Grant. Uh, mm, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it really comes through like uh, – and I don't mean you're in any way like derivative of them, but it's clear that it's in a similar vein – if that yeah, makes sure. sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes sense. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that uh, Kenneth Grant's writings are very interesting. I, I would, I would, I don't really fall into the Kenneth Grant worshiping cult of personality thing. I think that a lot of people miss the boat on Kenneth Grant. I think Kenneth Grant was a really great, interesting writer that used a lot of interesting creativity. And but I think that. Um, a lot of his work is misunderstood, uh, and then I think a lot of people actually just collect his books and don't actually read his books, um, mm. which, which is unfortunate. Um, they're almost looked at like strange curios now. Um, but we can't ignore the fact that Kenneth Grant uh, is a large reason of why the majority of people even know who Michael Bertrow is. Right. So there's an interesting kind of connection with that that radiates throughout. So I'm glad I, I, I don't. I, I'm honored that you picked that up. So thank you. Oh, appreciate it. Um, okay. Main subject here. The Golgotha, the place of the skull in the Bible, the crucifixion. Um, talk about the significance of that as the, uh, the name of the cult. Yeah, that wanted that, that, that as a child growing up in, I was sent to Catholic schools all my life, and then growing up within Louisiana, that culture was so infused with French Creole um, mixture, and occasionally there would be influences. And so the idea of the cross and Golgotha, the hill of the skull, was always a, a background resonance in my occult studies in, as, a, as a youth and as I got older kind of immersing myself in studies with Rudolf Steiner. That also became a big influence as a child in my teen years and into my young adult years. And the mystery of Golgotha was a very large subject of his writings. Eventually, as a, after I studied deeply into Vedic sciences, I started to see, to me, 
the idea of Golgotha was this magical doorway between the flesh and the soul. Uh, and that's where the cross obviously became a powerful symbol of that. And then to me, th- there was no more magical symbol than the idea of the skull being this laboratory where the flesh could intermingle with the soul. And that became this alchemical environment to stimulate radical transformation. Uh, and that's a big theme running through Cult of Golgotha is that the majority of our our work must be done in the flesh, in the body, uh, not to seek to escape the body, uh, but to actually use the body as a whole laboratory, which is obviously related to my work in tantric physics. It's very life-affirming, and also, too, with my personal definition of what my Gnostic systems and my Gnostic studies are, is very life-affirming. It's not, it's not seeking to escape the flesh. I don't see the flesh or the body or the nervous system as a prison, uh, I see it as this laboratory which we can kind of immerse ourselves and learn to use. And so the idea of Golgotha was that. The Golgotha was this kind of meeting point where the flesh, the blood, and the land all intermingled together. Um, there's a very important teaching about the piercing of the side of Jesus on the cross and the blood that spills out and touches the earth and transforms the earth and the flesh and the blood. So there's land, the blood, the flesh, the body. All these are very important doorways. And the cult of Agatha uses all those doorways. And each chapter kind of reveals different ways that those substances can be turned into alchemical elixirs. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, And... Can you talk about some of the methods that the cult of Golgotha would utilize to accomplish this? Yes, the the some of the most important parts have to do with very interesting systems of medicine, which I was exposed to and studied, particularly the system of Ayurvedic medicine, uh, which uses both the body, the nervous system, all the limbs of yoga, and definitely has a type of alchemical herbalism. Um, so they were using that, and I was also very interested in different types of Gnostic healing that had to do with bringing in Eastern systems and old eclectic medical systems together. To, and there, there's in one of the chapters I refer to that as specific medicines. And so I became very fascinated with how we can take substances of the five elements on Earth, intermingle them in specific ways. And then once they're consumed or used in a ritualistic fashion, uh, the body and the flesh has another kind of alchemical reaction with it. And then we're transformed and to actually literally see specific changes in the blood and specific changes in the nervous system. I said this in the desert when I spoke about the sacramental vision. And we talk about that if certain rituals and certain transformations were happening, the initiate the spiritual worker would literally see things differently. I didn't mean that metaphorically. I meant that they literally would see things differently. And so that's kind of crossed over into many of the practices within the cult of Golgotha, which is, of course, you can kind of start to get hints of the sacraments within that, right? We want to see all these, the five elements are ritualistic sacraments, the flesh, the blood becomes sacraments, um, and the land is a sacrament, all the environment. So we have all these atmospheres, all these environments, and we seek to work within them, actively working with that. And so those are things I've discussed in the book. There are certain chapters on each one of those things together. 
And uh, obviously that's informed by my years and years of medical training. And so I wanted to kind of take that information and work it into a magical system. Um, and hopefully people can appreciate that. And then as much as someone is willing to study those systems, they can go as deep down that rabbit hole as they want. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, so in addition to being informed by your uh, medical training, it sounds like this uh, sort of pure view of the body is also informed by a a view, a, a larger view of of all. And I'm just wondering if – and you, you talk in the book about, you know, it's based in esoteric Hinduism – Yes. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because as a non-dual uh, tradition, there's, you know, they have like an established perspective based on the lineages uh, accumulated wisdom over time. Over time, right. That's, I'm glad you picked up on that. There definitely is a deep inspiration of Advaita Vedanta that runs throughout the book. Um, and that's where I started to see that all these past subjects that I grew up studying, all these past experiences I had were a, a very interesting mix. In many ways, it became my own tantra. It's a very important thing to remember. The word tantra not only does it mean a collection of teachings, but it also means a web or a weaving of something together. And so we have these strands of time, and that's what I kind of previously mentioned, that idea of Gnostic nostalgia, is we have these narratives in our lives. And the more rich our lives narrative is, the more we have to fill our occult studies. And so if we have a lot of experiences in life, or if we, if we keep a certain narrative, or we, be, we become aware of that, as we deepen our occult studies, we have a more of a palette, more colors to draw from to create these unique expressions of what we're doing. And so I guess it could be a way of art. It's an expression of that. And that can be in words. It can be in symbols, the practice of medicine, how we move our bodies. And it's all connected within there, which obviously ties into themes throughout the book which are very inspiring to me that are related to quantum physics and i think it's very important that we shouldn't use quantum physics as just something to say that everything's connected so it's all one therefore we don't need to study anything if anything the quantum physics just challenge our basic conception of science um, trying to fit everything into a rational understanding and then to challenge our idea of linear time and how that moves in our lives. And so within that, there's a great connection between all these systems. And that's what I hoped people would see that as they read the different chapters in Cult of Gagatha, or if they read Entering the Desert, or if they read Tantric Physics Volume 1, or any essay that I wrote, it all connects. There's all a theme that's running through all of these different systems that are just expressed in different ways based on the viewpoint of the reader, based on what they bring to the book, or based on what areas they find interesting. Um, I'm, I don't like to try to create these little artificial dichotomies in which you know one part of me believes this, the other part of me believes this. To me, these things have to be integrated together, um, which was a huge influence of the writings of Sri Aurobindo. That's why I've kind of used some of his material. Sri Aurobindo was a huge inspiration for me in studying Hinduism and Tantra and Yoga, Vedanta, all these subjects. And so his idea of this interest 
of every part of our life and our yoga is our foundation of that and so uh, that's where all this is feeding in together all these themes are kind of intermingling running through um, and I made a point in the book to really cite sources footnotes things which were part of my inspiration to learning so anyone who reads the cult of Gogatha there's so many clues hidden throughout that book that provide keys for the reader. And it's particularly if the reader has a background of occult study, they can take once again, the book entering the desert, anyone, whether they're a, let's say they're a Thelemite, they're a Sufi, they're a Buddhist, they're a Christian. They can take their own tradition, read that book and take pearls out of there and create their own thing. Same thing with cult of Gagatha. I wanted anyone to be able to read that book, maybe become inspired uh, and, and mystified or even frightened. And then they can look at their own Gnostic narrative and say, well, what's going on with me there? How am I tying all my threads together? What am I doing to create my own Tantra or my continuity? Um, and then perhaps they might be interested in some key themes in Kultika Gatha. Uh, and that's related to use of succession, use of sacraments, orientation, um, ritual traditions. They kind of run through that. And then my, stress of connecting to the land it's a very important idea too so that's those are all ideas that are running through that but they're all connected so i'm glad you brought that up yeah thank you um so i we have uh some questions from rudolph as well so oh wonderful yeah i was glad he was able to at least join us in that way exactly um, so his first question he asked uh you have dedicated this book to Keith Shalcross Shareholtz. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yes. Mm-hmm. And could you tell us a bit more about him and what motivated you to do this? Yeah. Keith is a, a close, dear close friend of mine and a very important scholar of the writings of Aleister Crowley. And um, he is a very interesting writer that challenges readers and people's perspectives of how they are manifesting their occult practices with their daily lives. And so that's something where I wanted this book to be based on was that this is, these are teachings that I've taken from my studies and my life and then manifested them into a certain system of expression. And so Keith is big on that. And I think that, uh, I try to get a lot of Keith's writings out. Um, he's written a lot on his live journal. And so that was just very creative. He's very creative. He's very passionate. He's very fearless, and he's not afraid to confront the challenges to the status quo. And so that's what I wanted this book to be, a book that was fearless, wasn't afraid to challenge certain belief systems, and would hopefully inspire others. So I'm glad he asked that question. Me as well. Um, and as a Sort of a follow-up to that, I think, in some ways, you discuss in the introduction this sort of uh, systems of control, sort of the mental shackles. Yes. Uh, and this this is a real problem, and for a variety of reasons. Um, some have are as a result of you know, larger systems that we have, other yeah. results of individual laziness or sure, sure. lack of vision or even just not understanding. Ignorance ultimately in, is always to blame, but 
Can you talk about this idea of these systems of control and the way that they exert their influence upon us? Yeah, that's a big influence. The idea I, I talk in there about these systems of control which seek to commodify and homogenize ideas. This is a deep influence of Rudolf Steiner's idea of Ariman mm-hmm. and the Ahrimanic influence. And so I think that's something which we see happening now. That definitely is a part of the book, which I'm glad that you touched upon, which is definitely veering into a more strange esoteric ideas that there are some type of forces which are seeking to manipulate and control the evolution of consciousness. I think you bring up a perfect point is that it is in many ways a perfect storm, right? It's both maybe manipulation of consciousness, but it's also people who are lazy, people who aren't educating themselves. So it just creates a perfect situation for people to be easily manipulated, easily duped. Um, much how we see, for example, how many occult streams and systems are becoming heavily uh, politicized now, right? We see many people in their occult systems trying to fight for certain sides of politics, which to me is quite laughable. And occultism should be beyond that for sure and seek to break all systems of, of structure of that. Um, so that's a, I think those are, once again, those are other systems of control with these kind of, we could either say aramonic forces, sometimes we could say archonic forces, or some type of forces where there's a, kind of this alchemical tension on the earth of, between light and darkness, and there's always that continuum. But I think now, during this age, we can see a little bit more troubling signs of that happening. Things are coming shallow. Things are becoming really generic. People are afraid to explore new territories uh, in the occult. And in many ways, that's very strange because the occult, even the word itself, it should be something which is hidden, mysterious, and that implies dangerous. And any kind of exploration within that should be very challenging to the individual. Our occult studies should challenge us to grow. It should challenge us to examine our belief systems. It should challenge us to examine our, our metaphysics. What are our metaphysics in our, in our life? How do we believe? Why do we believe what we believe? How are these occult systems influencing our psychological development and evolution, our spiritual psycho- and evolution development, all these things? And so I think that's a big theme to the book is in many ways that's that battle that was having on or that was occurring on Golgotha was there was some kind of battle there between the flesh, the darkness and light and what that really means. Um, and that's why I, many of the Bible verses who I quote um, in the cult of Gugatha hint toward that as well. Right. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting too. And uh, I think it's really notable. I, I, maybe this is a digression somewhat, but uh, it was upon the cross that Jesus attained his final liberation. Right. Absolutely. That's a very important point. And between the vertical and horizontal planes, uh, all these things happening in the flesh. Um, it's such those are important doorways and as we can't ignore those mysteries. And that's something which I touched upon in depth in the cult of Gogotha. Sure. Sure. And I think this is a good segue into Rudolf's next question. Uh, The physical aspect, the body or corporeality, as you put it, is a very important part of your approach. 
at the same time, I understand that you define the cult of Golgotha as a very contemporary form of Gnostic approach. Does this mean for you that our time needs a reminder that the separation of the flesh and the mind in occultism has in general been pushed too far, which he believes, or has this danger of separation always been inherent to occult work across the ages? I think that it's, it's being more apparent now uh, in general. I think there's a strange disconnect from our body um, and this is obviously influenced deeply by my medical training, um, the data that we see happening now in health. For example, people are more obese now than ever before. We have skyrocketing rates of diabetes. We have skyrocketing rates of many chronic diseases. Uh, those are all really reflective of, of a society living out of balance with the flesh, living out of balance with the body. And so I think our occultism and spiritual practices can easily become separated from that, particularly obviously in Gnostic or or at least traditional ideas of Gnosticism of the body being a prison or this dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit, these ideas. And so to me, those are very dangerous. Once again, systems of control, which seeks to kind of disconnect us from these different doorways. And so to me, to reconnect with the body, to reconnect with how the body and the nervous system interact, to reconnect with how the brain, the flesh, the blood, all these different things are intermingling with our esoteric and spiritual development is very, very important. And the more we more are connected to the body, the more the practice becomes almost like a fantasy, almost like a game. And then people can have a lot of issues there. I talked a little bit about this in Entering the Desert, the concern between getting confused between the imagination and the imaginal, right? There's a distinct difference between that. Well, the cult of Golgotha, I wanted to show that someone can radically use their imagination if it's grounded in a base of esoteric study and a base of physicality that is balanced and healed and, and different way to balance via the five elements, balance being one's relationship to that, and then not seeking to escape that into some kind of astral fantasy. Uh, and I think those are important ideas to concern themselves with now. I think now it's, it's worse. It's more important for us to reconnect to the body now more than ever. And once again, that was one of the symbolisms of Golgotha is that that was happening in the flesh. It wasn't seeking something didn't. It wasn't something that happened after that. That hill of the skull was the place where this transformation was happening. Yeah, it's really important. I couldn't echo your thoughts more, uh, but I will anyway. Please do. Uh, I think it's we we have this tendency, especially in Western esotericism, towards this Gnostic dualism, yes, and this disdain for physicality, for vitality. Ultimately, is what it is, and it's it's not healthy, and it doesn't really allow for any sort of attainment or accomplishment in esoteric pursuits because you have to be embodied to do them exactly and if you're not embodied you know it just doesn't work the stronger and more vital you are in your body and your mind the more your senses can perceive 
which this is what we're talking about. Ultimately. Exactly. Exactly. At 100%. That's the exact idea. And I think that's why I think Tantra was so important too. the idea of like using the flesh as this laboratory, the health of keeping in balance. Um, or at least, and also too, that means finding out what is your strength and weaknesses, finding out where you need to grow, where you need to hold back, all those things. So I think it's so important. And I, I just don't see these ideas being discussed. Even worse, I think many of these ideas now are seen as like dangerous or quote toxic or controversial, um, but they're actually quite just fundamental ideas of health and strength and vitality, which it seems to me is what people are seeking via their occult study. I think it's very important for us to not look toward occultism for power that we lack in the temporal world. Oh, if yeah. We, it's very important. It's a basic idea, but it's very important. If someone is lacking physical vitality and mental vitality, and they think by studying some esoteric system they're going to get that, they're in for a very dangerous rude awakening, and the exact opposite will happen. That's so true. So true. And I, I really appreciate very much the, the, the way that you're so willing to go against the grain and you know whereas most people in this realm uh, that we are part of uh, esoteric studies or occultism Mm -hmm. uh, they're so willing to go along with the more historical Gnostics and this separation between the matter and the spirit uh, they're so willing to go along with the idea of, you know, that you can find health and vitality through esoteric practice solely. Right, right. Uh, it's outrageous in many ways. Um, but I appreciate the fact that you do this because you're one of the few people who does. And, um, I find that from my personal experience, you're 100% correct. And I wish more people would uh, listen and understand this because essentially their lives are at stake, but I don't think people take it as seriously as, as they should. A good point. I'm glad you appreciate that. Then I, I do agree with you that their lives are at stake. I mean, that's the one of the key things to remember is that if we want to live a long and healthy life, or at least a, a life as long as we can possibly do, to live out our karma, to work out our karma, and our, a long enough life to develop a deep, deep layered occultism, we have to be healthy. Um, and each person's health can be different. It doesn't mean that everyone has to do a certain way to be healthy, but there's many signs of disease and sickness and signs of health and vitality that we can clearly see. And if someone's lacking those, then those should definitely be addressed. Because like you said, eventually something's going to happen. It's actually a very esoteric idea too, because at the moment of death, when the consciousness and the physical body are kind of intermingling and they're starting to separate, I think a lot of people just think that when their consciousness changes at that point, that they're going to be the same person, but they're not. And if they're not ready for some type of transformation at that point, then um, the daily troubles they think are so tragic, they're going to 
exponentially energy than that point. So in many ways, we're trying to keep a healthy body to live a balanced life, have more energy to do our esoteric work, have more energy to concentrate, to focus, to remember. But we're in many ways, from a tantric perspective, we're also preparing for death. We're trying to meet death, to greet death at the most courageous, the most focused way that we can. And that's definitely an esoteric connection to the Golgotha as well, too, as that is a gateway to death. And at that moment, at that point, we don't have any time to waste. We have to be strong. We have to be courageous um, because we don't know when that's going to come. (laughs) Right. We we don't know when that's going to happen. So that's another kind of underlying current as well. But I agree with you. I wish more people would talk about this. Craig, what are you working on for the future? Now I'm pretty deep into finishing up the next volume of Tantric Physics, which, uh, which ideally should be out late in the fall or late fall. And that'll be Tantric Physics Volume 2, Sacred Body, Sacred Space. And then I'm also working on a follow-up to uh, Gogatha, which will be called the Gnostic Imaginarium Letters. And that will be just that will be just kind of a deepening of some of the ideas within the Cult of Gogotha and trying to show um, how these ideas kind of branch out into very interesting explorations and kind of in the letter form. That's what I wanted to do with that and to have almost these different types of letters, which explained how these, these ideas can be flashed out literally in the flesh. So a lot of exciting stuff and those are be but working on both those now and uh and uh, I am very excited about both. So how does it feel to be one of the most prolific occult authors? It's exhausting. No, I'm just, no, it's, <laughs> no I think that I'm so inspired I I'm very inspired to write and to get ideas out. I feel that that's one of the reasons why we're here in this flesh dimension is to manifest and to me, manifestation is, is is vital. It's very important. I think that if we don't manifest things, then we get stagnant. And if we don't manifest materials and ideas, then they just stay dormant. And if we can bring these ideas to life and manifest them, whether it's in a word or a text or a teaching, then that's when we can start to see some kind of transformation. So to me, I'm just greatly inspired to write. I'm greatly inspired to discuss these ideas. And then I feel a responsibility to the teachers, the people who taught me, the people who helped me, uh, who've asked me to do this. And I take that seriously. And I don't want to waste any time because we never know our time is going to be be done over. So, Yeah. Well, in addition to the books that you write, um, I've heard you speak. Mm-hmm. A number of times now, uh, including just recently at the Masonic Con. Yes, and it's you're always inspiring, and it seems like uh, the audience, including myself, always wants to hear more. And <laughs> if possible, you probably could continue speaking if it weren't for a time limit. <laughs> right. And the, the manner in which you are able to deliver your talks, uh, it, from what I've seen, you know, without real uh, – I mean the preparation for your talks is your work and your life and your practice. So when you get up to speak, you don't need notes or – a right. slideshow or anything you just are 
ready to talk because this is what you do. Right, right. No, that's something that I'm glad you picked up on. Is that to me is that uh, I always like talks to be fairly spontaneous to a certain extent, um, but also I want them to be based in something that I'm doing constantly. So to me, the my occult work, my uh, my mund- quote mundane life, uh, my temporal—they're all to connect it. Everything's connected together. I, I don't see a bifurcation or a dichotomy there, and so I can, I enjoy showing how those things interpenetrate, as we used earlier, and, and and hopefully that shows through the talks as well too. And and um, that I, I really enjoyed speaking at Masonicon. I had a, such a short amount of time to get that into, and then um, I hoped it came across well. But the reception was very good, and so I, I look forward to speaking a lot more in the coming years for sure. Yeah, it was it was a great great talk. So. And tonight, also great. It's been an It's been an honor to be there, and please give my regards to Rudolph. And thank you for his questions. Yeah, I will. And thank you, Craig. It's always an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. And I really treasure our relationship. And uh, I'm really glad to see that your work is growing and continuing. And I'm always looking forward to what you're doing. Uh, uh, Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate your support. In the Chamber of Reflection, Craig Williams and I continue the interview delving deeply into discussions of Tantra, magical yogic practices, systems of control, and much, much more. If you enjoyed the first half of this interview, be sure to listen to that exclusive recording at chamberofreflection.com. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash occultofpersonality. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks, and I salute you. Thanks for listening, and until next time.